this week. But something about that that moment was like, oh, it's okay if I'm not happy right now. And rather than this destructive boomerang that can sometimes happen and tell a story about whatever I'm feeling is not okay, trusting in the okayness of now is, it feels true, I think, because it both feels really hard and also really freeing to be like, now is okay. While recovering from an eating disorder in the hospital, Megan Biella stumbled upon the contemplative practices of mindfulness, meditation, and yoga which changed the course of her life. Megan and I talk about healing as an act of faith and how movement's been central to restoring her relationship with her body. And she reflects on how she's learned to trust the present moment and to take the journey of healing one step at a time. Because how do you take a step forward when you've taken a step back? You find a little faith. I'm Marin Smith. And this is Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario, and Megan Biella lives on Ho-Chunk territory in Madison, Wisconsin. So what is giving you hope right now? Do you have a story of something in your life recently that connected you with your sense of hope or faith? Um... Honestly, the first thing that came to mind, which is really simple and maybe slightly more reflective of just that hope is maybe a little harder right now, is that I live in the Northern Hemisphere and the days are getting longer. And so, you know, I leave work at around 4.30 or 5 and it's it's light now. And that it really is that feeling of like, okay, can make it through. Spring is just around the corner. and um, And also too, like... There's a solidarity in it too. It's um, the kind of hearty Midwestern, you know, we'll persevere through this together. <laughs> so there, there's um, there's this feeling of really not being alone um, because everyone's feeling mm-hmm. it. So, yeah. You grew up in this climate that you mm-hmm. currently live in now. Is that an experience that you can remember going back the sense of like the hope for spring. Yeah, I think I, um, yeah, I, I definitely felt that, that hope for, you know, warmer weather and more color. And, um, and I think too, there's, you know, when I was a child, I think there was more, there was more playtime outside. There was more built into winter for me that, that brought more of a sense of like embracing that fully. And I think, um, sometimes that's, maybe missing in adult life. And, um, at least for me, and it's finding ways to, I mean, even today, just like walking in the sunshine, even though it was 15 degrees outside and just being like, even if I, if I like, if I can get out there, there's, there's an experience of sort of aliveness and, um, um, joy and just in that, uh, in this season too. So I find that really interesting how a lot of people connect their sense of hope with the seasonal mm. calendar <laughs> as well. 
And that we've, you know, as humans too, have created sort of like our holidays and our lives around, <laughs> around yeah, that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting too, that there's such a holiday death, at least in the US, there's like a holiday deficit between like New Year's and Easter. It's like this really hard time where you don't have any break. <laughs> so we're just, yeah, just like yeah. plugging along until, you know, um, the, the spring thaw comes. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about, or a little bit about growing up. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of what your life was like growing up as a kid? Um, what you learned about the world as you were growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think like there was a lot of, there was a lot of implicit messages or lessons that I got from my family. And, um, and there was just the importance of, family and family time, you know, we had meals together every evening, pretty much, um, the importance of, um, taking responsibility and being responsible and reliable, um, being honest. Um, I just am kind of like tenaciously honest, I would say, <laughs> to, um, um, maybe sometimes to a fault and, um, and also hard work too. And, uh, those were really modeled, um, not super explicitly taught, uh, but, you know, um, but that was what I was shown. And, um, and two, there was just this expectation that I would make, make choices that would, that I would make good choices. There was, um, the assumption that that would happen rather than kind of consequences or discipline, um, or threats of, of not making good choices. And so by extension, I tended to just uh, work hard and be reliable and like, didn't really need a curfew or, you know, punishment for actions. And I think, you know, some of us are just more wired to, to follow <laughs> rules as well and um, probably fall into that. Um, I also, there was, there wasn't a strong, um, faith or, or church tradition growing up, but there was this belief, um, uh, in, the inherent goodness of within us that there is in the church that we went to, it was, they use the term like Christ within us. Um, yeah, but there was also, or not even, but, but, and there was this internalized difficulty of believing in that as well. Um, or, you know, live into. And, uh, I think that's partially what drew me to contemplative practice early on like in my teens was that, there was both this like real desire to live into this sense of there is divine within us. And also that it's really not always easy to believe in that. Yeah. I'm um, so you mentioned that you did go to a church growing up. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that was or what that was to your family? Sure. Yeah. So it was called it. It was a unity church, which is, um, I think a lot of people are not familiar with it. It's a fairly recent branch of Christianity, I think early 1900s. Um, and it's grounded in contemplative and prayer-based practice. And it's also doesn't hold that, it doesn't hold that Jesus was a savior. So it sees Jesus as a teacher and um, a prophet. And then um, it was very much grounded in a, a modern interpretation of those teachings for contemporary times. So nothing was taken literally. There was a lot of like father, mother, God, like 
not identifying in the he, him, in my words, patriarchal, (laughs) patriarchal model. Um, And, and so philosophically, it really aligned. Um, In practice, it was a fairly loosely organized church, and there was not really a youth program to speak of. So we held our services at the YMCA and Mostly we played tag at the YMCA um, until I was a little bit older, but, um, and I would go to services sometimes, but it was never strictly, um, it was, it was largely left up to us, especially as we got into high school of whether or not we wanted to go. It wasn't forced upon us to go. Um, but those teachings did permeate our, our house and, um, just that kind of, overall belief in the power of intention and prayer and holding people in your thoughts and your consciousness and um, gratitude practices and, and community too. So it was, while it wasn't, we weren't reading the Bible as a family, we weren't really using religious language and I am far from studied in the Bible or familiar with it, but there was, there was a lived practice too. So you mentioned that as a teen, you got interested in more in contemplative practice. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened for you or if it grew out of the tradition you came from or where that came to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, It really grew out of some significant struggle in my teens. And when I was, um, yeah, when I was 16, I was well, all through my teens, I was struggling with an eating disorder. And um, when I was 16, I made the personal choice to, to seek out intensive treatment and um, sought out various places I could go for that. And uh, in my intake, it was meant to just be like an information gathering session. I was determined to be medically unstable and was hospitalized. And I remember just feeling this calm acceptance and the sense of like letting go into something beyond my control. And there was a lot of relief in that, that so much of my life and so much of struggling with an eating disorder is about control. And um, that on the heels of that experience of being in treatment, um, that contemplative practices and embodied practices really just made sense that it was a way of um, being kind to myself and of loosening the grip of something that was really unkind and harmful. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what contemplative practices spoke to you or what body practices you started doing that supported you in that time? Yeah. Yeah. So part of what I was struggling with was just also um, obsessively exercising. And so at the time, a yoga practice, a really gentle yoga practice was this like balm of, <laughs> of just like not having to, and the, you know, there's all types of yoga, but the particular type of yoga that I was practicing at the time was just much more about actually feeling my body and, and enjoying movement rather than feeling this sense of, you know, I have to burn this many calories. I have to do this many minutes of such and such. And, there was something that was like freeing in the the freeness of the movement and um, and just that it was really about it really felt like it was grounded at the time in um, in more of kindness and exploration rather than something outside of outside of my own wisdom of my body so yeah 
So I'm curious then, because I know that you went on to become a yoga teacher, if there's a direct link between those experiences and then your desire to kind of embody yoga more fully in your teaching. Yeah. 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 I definitely think that there's a link there. Um, I, I started practicing yoga more in earnest in college and it just was, yeah, it was really transformative at the time of just feeling, um, honestly, like learning how to breathe. (laughs) It's like for the first time and how much that helped me to shift my energy, um, almost, you know, we get like without my will, it's just like, it's like you learn to breathe and you learn how to move. And then all of a sudden things shift and just feeling more sense of spontaneous joy and gratitude. And so it didn't take me long to think like, I, I'd really like to be able to share this practice with others. And, um, and that is really the joy of of teaching and sharing embodied practices, facilitating or sharing or um, joining in a community of embodiment and, um, and the, and the power of that. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the role that yoga and contemplative practice and body work plays in your life now? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as far, I get, as far as contemplative practice goes, uh, I would say that that's been the, the strongest, bedrock that has been a, a continuous practice for me. Um, and it, it's usually in the form of, of seated meditation and, um, which I, I experience as an embodied practice, um, for sure. Um, yoga practice has, um, come and gone and evolved in, in a lot of ways. And for me at this point, it's come to be, you know, occasionally doing a few poses, but really it's more about bringing, awareness to whatever type of movement I'm doing. And so, um, formally rolling out a yoga mat or going to a yoga class is way less likely than just maybe laying down on the floor and spending five minutes feeling into what needs to move (laughs) and, um, and just being conscious with that. Um, and also too, really seeing, I mean, with the roots of yoga, being able to support you in sitting practice, it, I think I've just experienced that very much firsthand in the sense of, um, supporting the resiliency of the body, um, to weather the storms of the mind, um, when we take our seat and just how important movement is in being able to be still Mm -hmm. as well. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I see in my work just how, how stuck we can get, um, if we're only still (laughs) and, um, and, and how we can come to be really disconnected from our, our bodies. And, um, and my experience and what I observe is just that it can give so much more fuel to whatever mental constructs we're creating and what stories we're telling. Um, because there, there isn't, it's not rooted in something that is real, which is like what's happening right now in the body. And, um, that's just like an ongoing every day, every hour practice. So like, Oh, okay. What's real right now. Um, and in movement, I definitely experience 
the tides will it can can change. Um, there's that possibility of getting unstuck. Yeah, one of the things that interests me a lot about what you're saying is in the context of faith, in a lot of traditional religious practices, sometimes you're told or you're told that the body is bad or that we need to separate the mind from the body in order to achieve enlightenment, move higher in our spirituality. And what I'm hearing from you is that your body is actually the way into Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I recently had, well, it's interesting to think about in terms of yoga traditions and, um, and these different paths of knowledge. So um, I think recently it was, I guess I have this somatic experience bias, <laughs> but um, because I just, it's the expression of being human is having, is part of that is having a body. And, um, but also I, I see how other people connect to different paths of knowledge, paths of wisdom, um, paths of faith. And sometimes that's intense intellectual study. And sometimes that's, um, you know, more the paths of devotion or, um, and how that for me, it really has to, it has to land in my body to, for it to feel, for it to feel true or for me to actually, um, internalize it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to, you, you talked about having an eating disorder and then coming to a place where you are living your life in deep trust with your body. Um, what was that process of learning to trust what your body is telling you or being even present mm. in your body? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, uh, I think it can be a tricky thing when there's so much focus on the, the body in an eating disorder and that like, it's kind of like the only way, um, what is it? The only way out is through kind of. Um, and I, I think it's really, it's interesting that both that like both movement and growing and cook, growing food and cooking are like, so have been so central to my recovery. Um, and to actually be, have more of an experience or a commitment to, um, nourishing practices in movement and in food preparation and in eating and sharing food with others. And that, that is all really grounded in an embodied experience. And, and it's just been so central to, um, to move from a place of like, what exercise should I do? What foods should I be eating in order to, um, I mean, along with recovering from an eating disorder came a lot of digestive issues and to eventually get to a place where it could be like, oh, yeah, my digestion's off. It's probably because, you know, I had a little like I'm a little imbalanced in this way. And so I can, you know, shift it by doing some stress relieving practices or um, or just eating more simply to digest foods. And that like it's not always so clean either in my mind or in in my body, but that I do feel like I have those tools so much more now to be like, okay, I know what I need to do to reset rather than like, 
what the hell is going on? Like, you know, what did I do wrong? Why am I, you know, why is this still happening? And, um, just that that was such a path of like, just checking in and listening rather than seeking outside of myself. I'm curious as to how that thread then leads into the work that you do now as an occupational therapist. And if that was part of the path that inspired you to do that work. Yeah. I, so I had, um, enjoyed teaching yoga and, um, and I knew I never wanted it to be my main gig. And, um, what drew me to occupational therapy was the fact that I could reach a really broad, um, group of people because it's it's a recognized healthcare modality that you know people from all walks of life are going to come and come through the door and seek treatment. That I I both didn't have to do the like self employment business hustle, <laughs> and also I could see a lot more diverse clientele mm-hmm. um, and who um, I didn't think I would reach if I had solely relied on self employment or being working in a yoga studio. And, um, and that's really been the case. And it's been, it's, it's such an enjoyable challenge of my work is just that it's, uh, as an occupational therapist is that, you know, you're, you're reaching people at very different places in terms of, um, both the injuries they may have and also their, um, their sense of, you know, where their body is. (laughs) Um, and that at the end of the day, I really see how, um, attention, bringing attention to how we're feeling and what's going on is just inherently healing. Like things will change if we pay attention to what we're doing and how we're, how we're moving. And it's a really neat interrelate or a really neat relationship between, mindfulness and contemplative practice and just, you know, being in community with others and not solely relying on our own internal locus of control, our own internal view of ourselves, but being able to be a mirror and, um, and support once I'm reflecting back to people. Mm. Yeah. Do you have an example sort of to help visualize this? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so to bring it back to the Midwest and the fact that it's winter here, the (laughs) most common injury we see this time of year is, um, is wrist fractures and they focus primarily on, um, upper extremity rehabilitation. And I oftentimes see people right after they get a cast off and there's plenty of research to show that if you're immobilized, I think for, I think it's like three days, the neural connection between the brain and that part of the body that's immobilized, like, is greatly reduced. Wow. And, um, and so they come out of the cast and their hand and their arm is really like a hand and a arm, not like theirs. Is <laughs> this like separate appendage. And they're oftentimes very fearful and very stiff. And how just knowing, like, ha- putting hands on somebody and just knowing like you're not going to hurt yourself can completely shift their relationship to their body. 
Um, so they're getting input, they're getting, you know, the power of touch, they're getting input of, you know, part of their body that has not had any contact except a cast on it for four or six weeks. And, um, and then the assurance of like, as long as I know, you know, they're experiencing pain, but like, as long as they have this assurance that I'm not going to hurt myself how that just opens this door of like, Oh, I can do this. And, and then it's just this matter of like reclaiming their body. And time and time again, there's a point at which the light switch turns and people like the light bulb turns on and people come. It's like at some point they come and they're, and it's just like things have clicked and it's like they're spontaneously using their hand again. And there's like no rushing that, but it's this um, amazing kind of transformation of going from the hand to like my hand again. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's pretty amazing, um, actually. Um, but it's so true. I think a lot of people, regardless of injury or not, experience their bodies as not them. Mm-hmm. Um, like experience, like my body does this as opposed to, I am doing, (laughs) you know, and I think there's so many things in the world that disconnect us from this embodied experience. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that healing has to come from bringing those things back together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to pick up on what you're just saying before as well, because it strikes me that healing itself requires faith. It requires hope that something beyond your current state is possible. There's trust that something can, mm-hmm. can get better and sort of a two-part question in your own journey of healing. What was the process for you in learning to trust that things could get better? And then the second half of that is in your current work. How do you get your clients or your patients to believe that healing is possible for themselves mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. trust that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, to both parts of the question, I think in reality, it's really challenging. <laughs> um, and like, I would be, I'd be lying if I would say that I leave every interaction with myself or <laughs> with others with, with hope of that things can change. Um, and I think speaking to my own journey, um, it's so much about hindsight, I think, for me, of just seeing the process of, like, taking the long view of just the, the gradual process of transformation and that, that belief that change is possible and to put energy and intention towards that which I want to change. And that is a continual process for me. Um, all, you know, just all the different layers of, of healing, you know, it's one, one layer feels like it's, it's on its way and it's more solid. And, um, and then you realize that there, there's other layers underneath that. And so it's just an ongoing process. Um, when I'm working with other people, I, I find that I'm, I'm wary of my, my own ego and of attaching myself to their outcomes. Um, but it's also, this balance between like not attaching and also entering into a therapeutic partnership and, and having, um, having an investment in how they do, um, too. So it's, there's a tension there. And 
I think it's that now I've been in practice for almost three years and I think there's so much hope that can come from just knowing you're not alone and that there is the possibility of healing and with more experience it's it there's something powerful that comes from being able to say like I've seen this happen it can it can happen and um it just that that spark of like feeling so alone and feeling like so just deer in headlights of like how did this happen like how did I get to where I am to like okay well if someone else could do it then maybe I can do it too yeah I I'm curious because this thread of community has popped up a couple times Mm -hmm. in our conversation and I know community is a very important part of the way you live your life Mm -hmm. um can you speak a little bit more about how community supports you in your healing, in your doubt, in your struggle, mm-hmm. how that, and, and why you believe that's essential, mm-hmm. that person to person connection? Yeah, it is so central to um, how, how I live my life. And just like, I think there's, I think about how when we're stuck in suffering, when I'm stuck in suffering, how lonely that can be and how it can feel like I'm the only one experiencing that and how um, it doesn't take long for me to reach out to those who I trust. And, and then how time and time again, I mean, both time and time again, I'll feel alone in my suffering and time and time again, I, I learned that I'm not because of, because of the experience of community, um, and in its various forms, it might be really close friends for certain things that are more vulnerable, or it might be a church community or meditation community in which like, there's an incredible feeling of, of closeness, even though there isn't necessarily close personal relationships, because there's a kind of agreed upon practice and perseverance of just coming together and, and showing up. Um, and, I think like, I mean, even too, thinking about healing and I I just, I remember one time, yeah, my mom was reflecting back to me that, that I had like done something all on my own. And I just remember just feeling like, what? (laughs) Like, no, I have like so many people who help me. Um, Just the sense of like, there's no, no going, going it alone. Um, So, um, even just, you know, the voices, the things that come up in my head of like, just that they, they're, they're marinated with all these different um, people and teachers and experiences that are really, they're made personal, but they're, um, they're drawn upon from all around me. Yeah. So I think a lot of people in our generation are searching for ways to heal whether it is a physical injury or a spiritual one or an emotional one, what would you say to someone who's looking for a way to take the first step on that journey? Hmm. I think the thing I would say as a first step is, is literally (laughs) like taking a step and, um, and two, I just really believe in finding movement that brings joy and brings love to your body and so like 
I, I think there's so much out there in terms of what, you know, what we should do and like, you know, Oh, I should go for a run or I should, um, I should do yoga, but like really it's like whatever feels good. (laughs) So, um, and I think like that is, it can be really small. And I think that like in terms of one thing, um, yeah, I just really believe in the power of that. Yeah. One step. Yeah. And that that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, circling back to the very beginning of our conversation where you were talking about nature mm-hmm. and the sun returning as a, an experience of hope for you right now. I know you also garden and farm and you've mentioned that you know, growing your own food was a healing practice for you. What is the role that nature plays in your life and in what does it bring to your life, that connection? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, growing plants is, well, and too, I, I read this interesting book last year called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's um, uh, written by a botanist and also someone with Native heritage. And she talks about this power of, of naming. So they bring, in her um, tribe, they bring animacy to a larger range of things and plants than um, the English language does. And, um, and, it, and so I, was, I caught myself saying growing plants because I'm like, well, plants grow themselves. I help raise them. <laughs> but, um, and so shifting that language to you know, raising plants and being in community with plants um, is this incredible experience of caring for and being cared for. And so I love spending time in nature, going for hikes and just being outside in general. It's really stabilizing. And, um, the practice of raising food and being involved in that is like just this yearly miracle of, of, of abundance and, and dedication and just this, this sense of being in really close relationship to plants. And, um, and then it's just, it just feels like this disproportionate generosity where it's like just this abundance of, of love and, um, and care that the amount of care that I put into the plant feels like it's just so generously given back (laughs) in, in nourishment and, and abundance. So, yeah. Yeah. It has its own spiritual essence to it for Mm -hmm. you too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before I move on sort of to my last two questions, is there anything else that you want to say or want to add or that you might've thought of as we were talking that maybe didn't come up in our conversation so far? Mm. I guess one thing I sort of touched on, but just to maybe expand upon was just how so many teachings, pearls of wisdom that I've heard along the way, like do tend to hit my head first. And it takes so many times before it actually um, hits my, hits my body. And that's when it like, that's when it really lands. And that recently there was this teaching and I was on retreat in January that this sense of okayness that like, this is just how it is right now. And, um, you know, how many times have I thought to myself, it's okay if I'm not comfortable or that I'm not happy right now. Um, but something about 
that that moment was like, oh, it's okay if I'm not happy right now. Um, and rather than this destructive boomerang that can sometimes happen and tell a story about whatever I'm feeling is not okay. And just the process of that. And, um, and I think like bringing that back to faith or hope, it's that trusting in the okayness of now is, um, it feels true, I think, because it both feels really hard and also really freeing to be like, now is okay. So I want to ask you now a question that I ask everyone that uh, I speak to, um, and it's about the definition of faith. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. So one, as an allegiance or duty to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself. And three, as something that you know or believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. Mm -hmm. And so I want to put this definition to you as questions. So for you, Megan, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to in your life? Um, I feel an allegiance to relationships and um beyond just human relationships, but expanding that to much more broadly, uh, thinking about relationships to the planet. And, um, and I think in that, just that allegiance to living in and with my eyes open to interconnection. Yeah. What do you put your faith or trust in that is bigger than yourself? Yeah. I think like, cause, because I don't identify with God or a figure. <laughs> um, this is sometimes like the question of like something bigger than myself. It's interesting because both the sense of allegiance to interconnection and relationship both really resonates and is something bigger than myself. But I think something about that language makes me balk because of how it's usually steeped in like higher power. Um, and I think also, also, it's also helpful sometimes to think in terms, for me at least, to think in terms of its opposite. So when it's like me or mine and it's not bigger than me, it's just, it's just me. There's um, like a power struggle of will. Like I, you know, this is like my will is in charge and how disconnected I feel with when I'm in that space and like disentangling from that, which like, it, you know, my will can feel so solid <laughs> and that re remembering that like that, that that changes, that this feeling of whatever emotion has taken over is feeling so solid and that like it's up to me and mine to figure out and disentangle from that is, is forgetting, forgetting that there's interconnection. And I really like that sense of like, I was just remembering that I love this, the idea of that practice is about remembering, um, that it's all we already know. It's just remembering yeah. So what do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I believe that everybody has something at the core of them 
they know is true. Yeah. I definitely struggle with my, my um, fair amount of doubt. And um, so having so such an assuredness is like, is a hard thing for me to stand on. And, and what arises is that uh, kindness really matters and that it has a ripple effect. And I think like that arises for me because of both knowing how powerful not being kind <laughs> is and also how powerful being kind is again, thinking about in terms of opposites and that it's a key piece of the puzzle is bringing more kindness um, in bringing more kindness to the world is, is practicing extending kindness to ourselves. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have a spiritual practice that you do on a regular basis? It could be daily, monthly, yearly, or seasonally that helps you feel connected to your sense of faith or hope? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I find that doing some movement on the floor <laughs> is actually really helpful for um, connecting with a sense of being centered and grounded and really connected to the breath. And um, one of my teachers has said, uh, the breath is the wind that scatters our conditioning. <laughs> and um, if we can, we can really feel the breath, a, I believe in the power of the breath to help us come, come back and to come home and, um, and that there's just a universal experience in feeling the body breathing. Hmm. So um, when did you start doing this kind of movement work? I know we've talked about that a little bit and like, when do you do it now in your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Almost every day I'll do, you know, I'll do something where, I mean, every day I'll, I'll sit and do a seated meditation and, um, and I find that doing some sort of centering movement, uh, really helps support that. And so nearly every day I'm doing something, um, along those lines that is, um, centering me in that way. Mm. And do you do it before or after your meditation? Ideally before. Yeah. Ideally before it, um, uh, it just helps to bring the energy from my head down more into my body. Yeah. And how do you feel after? What is the, the experience that encourages you to keep coming back to this? Mm -hmm. Um, afterward, I'll, I always feel like my internal ticker has just slowed down a little bit. <laughs> so it's just, um, I feel like another thing that I've heard that I really like is these practices help our soul catch up with our body. And so there's just this sense of like integration. Um, and I just think that it helps me to, to move through the world with a little bit more integrity <laughs> and just, um, and, and kindness too. So, yeah, that's great. Um, what would you say to people that hear movement practice and think, 
I can't dance or I'm not flexible (laughs) or um, need to get over the hurdle that movement means Mm -hmm. a specific thing. What I would say is if you're thinking about, um, I mean, the particular practice I have in mind is completely conducive to doing in your bed, in your pajamas. (laughs) So I usually do it on the floor. You can definitely do it in a bed. (laughs) It'll be just fine. (laughs) So no one's, no one has to watch. No one has to see it. It's a, it's a private experience for yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. Cool. And you can find Megan Biella's spiritual practice, Gentle Movement, in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com, where you can listen to her guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our music is by Ron Kelly, and our design is by Barbara Kowalski. If this episode spoke to you, you can subscribe or leave us a review. But more importantly, pass it along to someone you care about. It's one way we can encourage each other to keep faith. Next week, I'll be talking to Kate Werneberg about her journey converting from Catholic to Anglican and how her choice to change her faith tradition was for her a question of integrity. So until then, holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.